Hi, I'm Maria. I'm Shadio. And I'm Amber. We're from Jerusalem. We're the producers of the Women Behind the Wall podcast. This podcast features stories of how the political seeps into the private lives of people in Israel and Palestine, and how women experience the conflict. These narratives give you a glimpse into the lives of women with deep hopes and aspirations. Most of the women interviewed live in the West Bank. They're women behind the wall. We hope you stay a bit, listen to their stories, and hear the messages they hope you'll hear. Today on Women Behind the Wall, we hear from Ilda, a Palestinian Christian who lives in Beit Jala in the Bethlehem district. Ilda co-owns Beit Hashem's for Self-Development, a yoga studio and community center serving Palestinians. She shares how her community experiences the occupation here, what some of those consequences are for children, and how strengthening the mind-body connection is essential to developing resilience for Palestinians. So my name is Ilda Zarmut. I was born and raised in Amman, Jordan, and I come from a refugee family. So my grandfather from my father's side, during the war in 1967, he took his kids and they sought refuge in Amman, in Jordan. And according to the law at that time, if you don't reside here for three years, you lose your residency right. And that's what happened to him. So he was able to come back for visits, but he never managed to come to live here. And it was like a dream for my dad to come back. Actually, my grandfather passed away in Amman. That's where he was buried. He never made it back. But people were able to come for visits. And in one of my dad's visits to Bejala, where they're originally from in Bethlehem, he met my mom. They got married, and both of them, they moved to live in Jordan. That's where I was born with my, you know, other siblings. And we lived there all our for me on my childhood and I finished my high school from Amman and in the year 1994 right after the Oslo Peace Agreement Palestinians were able to apply for what's called family reunification and that's how my dad obtained his ID back his residency rights and that's when we all moved as a family here it was 1999 one year before the second Antifada started which was like a real shock for all of us as a family, you know, move, moving from full freedom to experience occupation. And it was like a decision to move here all together as a family, you know, it was a dream for not just my dad, because here we also have um, our family from my mother's side. And basically after the death of my grandfather in Amman, most of my uncles just left the country to the States, so they actually immigrated. So my dad was there with his two other sisters only. And so it was like a dream for him and my mom also to come back and be close to her family. Um, I'm married and I'm a mother of two boys. I have Jude, he turned nine and a half, and Jilan is seven years. While immediate and extended family provide a primary source of identity for Palestinians, their religious background extends the safety net of community even further. So I come from a Christian background and basically Greek Orthodox background. So my mom is like a full Orthodox practitioner, a believer, uh, my dad as well. So we grew up in this also setting of a fully Christian community. So basically, we lived a life where we were very close, and my mom would 
take us every Sunday to the mass. She wouldn't miss it. My dad used to work, he was a bank manager. So she would take the four of us to the church and carry the burden, you know, of having four kids in a Greek Orthodox church. Yeah, but she's, until now, like she's dedicated, committed. Being raised and born in a Christian Greek Orthodox family, for me was a gift, I feel. Greek Orthodox Church is a little bit of the most conservative churches, you know, it's, uh, it's not one of these open churches. Yet there was this, um, I would say like discipline and respect and, you know, lots of love and all of these like core values. I was raised up as a child, very much exposed to them. And I think each person needs to have a certain foundation of whether it's ethical or religious, but like a strong foundation of roots that they can grow from afterwards and just like decide where they do, do they want to go. And this like for me, what I'm speaking about is my own personal experience and how I feel it affected me because I still have strong connection with Christianity. And I have this pride of being part of this tribe. And this little thing comes out with me when like most of the feasts and celebrations of either Christmas or Easter, I feel proud to be part of this tribe. My husband, he had been very supportive since the beginning. Um, we have conversations. He, he considers himself as an atheist. That's, like, that's what I love about the relationship with him, is that we support each other wherever we are. So he doesn't interfere where I am. I totally get where he is. And, you know, we're like in two different places, yet we have also some similarities in the way we're trying also to raise the kids up now. Now it's a little bit different in terms of identity. When I was younger, I would feel strongly like an Arab, Palestinian, and then Christian. And it took me some time to also get out of these boxes. It's not a negative thing, but like, Identities is not negative until you reach a point where this box becomes like um, you're enclosing yourself with it. it. It limits you from approaching others. And to reach a point where you, again, you see all of these identities as not to discriminate you, take you away from the people around you and make you like higher or superior, but to see them as like, yeah, if this is who am I, if this is who I was born to be, it doesn't have to be eliminating or superiority for others. And it took me some time also to see myself as a human without all these identities. And it takes a lot because you have to identify, like even now I'm married and people go like, so you're the daughter of whom? Or the wife of whom? It's like, there's always a label that people want to have next to your name and I know like sometimes my husband doesn't like it when I say my family name he goes like yeah but you're married I'm like I can't just identify with this family but for respect to my husband's family you know my kids are, are your family now in terms of like, the names but I love you and of course I'm part of you but this doesn't make me from my husband's family and you know it's a little bit of a debate as much as he's open-minded when it comes to this he's like no, you just identify and people ask me like you know so oh your father is this and your husband is that and it's there's something in me that doesn't like this I, I would love to be 
prefer to be seen as just me without all these labels around. Maybe the only thing I would love to be identified with is a mother. And for me, this is much different than just like any other labels because there's so many, so many similarities with other women who are mothers. And even if they're not mothers, we have this by nature. For older women, we have this motherhood, whether we have kids or not. We still know how to nurture and take care of others. So there's this like nurturing part in us, which was we were born with, and I would love to be identified as a mother. I know there's like also some attachment when it comes to this word, but still, like this is how I love it. Ilda's vocational journey has brought her to a place where she plays a unique role in her community, providing tools for self-development to Palestinians who would not otherwise be able to access them. So I finished my high school from Jordan, and I came here to live in Palestine, and I went to Bethlehem University. I did my BA degree in, in business administration and marketing. And I worked in my field of investment for like a year before quitting this job and then becoming involved in non-governmental work with NGOs in Bethlehem. And I have done this for like seven years, um, being part of different kinds of work on the ground. And then I quit my job to pursue the stream of Beit Shams for self-development. Beit Shams means house of the sun. In Arabic, it's Beit Shams that. And the name came from the fact that we believe that we all have a sun inside. We all have this light inside of us. When we are in times of hopelessness or frustration, disappointments, we don't want this light to shine, either on ourselves or the people around us, and we shut down. And because we work with the body, it's the house of the sun. So that's why it's called Beit Shams, House of the Sun. And this vision came um, in 2012 of creating a safe space for women. We knew there would be yoga in this place, there would be meditation, but we didn't know like how it would look like. So this dream is a dream of two women, myself and my partner, Nimala. Nimala is Palestinian from Bejala. And we thought at the beginning it's going to be a woman's space, but then we saw also men coming. So we decided to create um, a community center. And the idea is to create a space of hope in this situation where people can easily lose hope. And for us, it's through the work, a unique tools that we're offering of yoga, of meditation, of women's circles, whatever we can do for the well-being and self-care of the people here in this land, that's what we're offering. Because we spend all of our time, all of our life learning about things, and we never learn about who we are. We don't know, like, we're so numb sometimes to our emotions, to our thoughts, and how all of this is affecting our actions and actions in life. People live all around the world. They live under certain stress. Here, you add up to the social, the financial, you add up a layer of occupation, which also adds up like huge stress on the people. The thing is when you live under constant trauma, you are disconnected from your body, from your emotions and also your thoughts. And to live in this situation where trauma is constant, it's not that people have lived a certain trauma and it's over, it's continuous. And it had been continuous for 70 years.
people don't realize yet that they're traumatized. And the thing for us that we're trying to bring is awareness. Awareness to whatever sensations and emotions we're feeling right now. And this connects us to our own true being because we believe we are all beings of love, of bliss and freedom that is within. And when we connect to all these values of our true own self-being, then we can bring this to the outside. We are the first specialized yoga studio in Palestine. There, there's another yoga studio in Ramallah, but here we're offering classes for everyone. So we have like yoga classes for kids, pregnant women, elder women, we adapt it on a chair. We have yoga for runners. We have mixed classes. We have women classes. Um, we also have like different styles of yoga. So we have a group of teachers, each one bringing a different style. For me, it's very important that we also start taking good care of ourselves, especially as a woman. In this country, in this land, in the Arab world, women are supposed to sacrifice for others. Sacrifice your own rest, your own health. Everyone comes as a priority but yourself. Like, I have to keep my sanity also to bring this to others. And this doesn't mean that I don't fall off, and, but it's important after every time we fall off to stand and rise up again. And that's how I also bring the philosophy of yoga into my class, into the practice. Whether we're using balancing poses that needs lots of patience, because some people in balancing poses, they fall off and they don't want to try again. And my invitation is to stand up and try one more time. Because that's how life is. Imagine that every time we fall, we just like allow ourselves to stay on the floor. It's not going to work. We have to stand up again for every, whatever we really need, whatever we stand up for. Just rise up again, fall but rise up. And that's how we develop, that's how we grow. So that's how we're, we're bringing the whole philosophy of the things that we offer here to reflect on people's lives. Our work is affecting the lives of people living under occupation. We are also teaching things and equipping people to learn more about trauma. We have done like lots of trainings here, so it's not just like classes that we give. We also try to bring new tools and skills to the locals, especially psychologists or uh, social, uh, you know, social workers, activists, whoever we can, we're working with to bring new tools in their toolkit, you know, just have them in the back of your toolkit, just if you need them. And many of these trainings had focused a lot on trauma. And uh, we have done a training of trainers in trauma release exercises. And TRE is considered a revolutionary tool to be used when you deal with people with trauma. So the vision is only to work with the Palestinian community. We feel this is our own homework to focus on the local community. So we are helping the locals get this knowledge and spread it out to different localities. But also we have worked with many groups for the past two years. We worked with a group of uh, young men activists from Hebron. So these are group of men very active in Hebron and the old city, and they're in direct contact with the Israeli soldiers. And they actually, they asked us to work with them on retreats, like, so we would be, Nimal and myself, leading a two or three day retreat for them. 
and it's all about self-care and well-being. And because most of these people who work in the field, they turn out to become burnt outs, which they don't realize. And it's all in their bodies and their health, and they don't see it yet. So for us to work with these guys and like recharge and create a space for them that is safe, where they can practice yoga, like stretching the body, connecting to the body, because again, when we're traumatized, we lose this connection with our senses, with our body. There's this also chaos between the left and right side of the brain and how we're functioning, and also the relation to the body. So most of these people, you don't like, they don't really connect, coordinate on a body level, and then also on a mental health and also spiritual level. So all of these levels, which what yoga means is union. It's union of the body, of the mind, and of the spirit. So we worked with these guys, and we were two women leading retreat for only men from Hebron, very conservative. All of them were Muslims, and all of them active, different kinds of backgrounds. Some of them are educated, others not. We had young men like 19, 20, uh, and we had also men in their like 30s and 40s, and all of them doing yoga. And my partner, Nimala, she is the, the only Palestinian trained in this kind of yoga, which is uh, yoga of Samara, which is a combination, a mix of like um, meditative movements and yoga. So there are like, like lots of dances in it. And just like a group, a circle of men just dancing and moving their bodies. This was like an amazing experience. We worked with them twice and they can't get enough of it. So for them, they realize that they need this time for themselves every now and then to just like disconnect from everything, recharge, and then go back to their field, to the work that they're doing. So for, for this group of men coming from Hebron, they live under daily uh, constant trauma and violence from whether the, the settlers who are living in Hebron. And Hebron is a very special case because there are settlers inside the city, in the old town, and there's also soldiers, like military. So there are clashes um, that are happening very often and mostly like throughout the day. I remember one of these men, he's very young, and he was telling me that he has this fear of walking all by himself when it's dark because he's afraid, you know, soldiers would just like grab him and arrest him. And this guy, he was like in total shock. We focus on the somatic, the body experience. I don't ask them anything about their stories or whatever they have gone through. Because for me, I, I need to release the body first. I need the body to feel comfortable. So even afterwards, if they want to speak about their trauma, speaking about it becomes different. Instead of speaking from a space of anger or fear or emotions, you release the body and then they speak about it in a different way. And that's why trauma release exercises, which is one of the things that we use, TRE, is considered revolutionary. Because it's not that people go and speak about their trauma. It's about releasing the body and allowing the body to fall into a place of calmness. For us, this is like one part of resiliency for Palestinians, especially those people who are in direct contact with resistance in like front lines of the situation, 
where they are physically harmed, mentally harmed, and also emotionally harmed. So for the work that we offer is like supporting these guys to stay in their sanity and, and really stay centered and create a space for them to release whatever they're having. So whether through the yoga or the meditation or the movements or the TRE practices, or even I lead also deep relaxation sessions, which is when people are in a state of, they're not fully awake, but they're not asleep. And this state allows the mind, the brain, and the body to release, to release lots of tension because we could like sleep eight hours and just like still wake up feeling tired. So this state of like 40 minutes or an hour rejuvenates, recharges the brain because all the senses are shut down except for listening. So people would be listening, it's like a guided meditation. Beta Shams also works with Palestinian children who have been arrested by the Israeli military, imprisoned, and prosecuted in military courts, most often with the charge of throwing stones. Each year, approximately 500 to 700 Palestinian girls and boys, aged 12 to 17, endure this trauma. Children as young as six or seven are also often temporarily detained. We also worked with a group of girls, young girls, who were imprisoned in Israeli prisons and released. And we're talking about girls aged 12 to 16. All of them were arrested, imprisoned, have gone through, you know, all of these hardships of being at this very sensitive age in a prison. And these girls, we worked with them for three days. And when I was leading this deep relaxation session, so I invite people that when they hear the bell, they wake up, they start waking up, and they didn't wake up. They continued sleeping. And for me, this was a sign that they felt safe to sleep, which I think they haven't done in a while, because the body needed to sleep. And when we're in fear or trauma, we're always agitated, we're always, you know, off the edge. Whatever happens, whatever sound we hear, we just like jump. So we're always alert, like fully alerted. And these practices give the people a space to really rest and really connect. So working with this group of girls was for us like, it was again, my partner and I, Nimala and I, we, we felt we were drained after working with these girls because the, the trauma in their bodies, you could see it. And when, people, when people's knees are locked, when people's joints are locked, like they can't flow, they can't move, the trauma is so much in the body that it's preventing them from also like moving. So for these girls at this age, which is already sensitive and emotional in their teenaging time, they're already developing their own characters and personality. And to be imprisoned, to be arrested and detained by full forces of army that are fully armed. And these girls are very sensitive because also here in, in this community, there's like very much sensitivity when it comes to raising girls or raising boys, you know. Girls are like um, the untouchable. And when these girls are being taken, arrested during either the night or the day by full army, this creates a big trauma for them in their bodies and in their minds. 
and most of them what I have seen is how much they lock their bodies how much they lock their brain because people have different kinds of reactions to trauma you know it's typically either freeze fight flight and most of these people they freeze so they freeze in a time where the brain you know doesn't want to remember what happened but it's still there in the body and still they're living a different reality so all of these all of these aspects they create more um, attention for the body and for the brain so that's why when we create the safe space for them to allow them rest and for the mind to stop because most of the actions and the stress in the body is created through the mind so when you work with the brain or the body they balance each other they bring one another to rest so when we stop the thoughts then we allow the body to rest and also when we contain the body we give the brain a message to calm down you know in these reactions that's why the body needs to find a space to release whatever is stored in it because the body is very smart the cells in the body has memory so maybe you haven't you can't remember a certain experience that you have gone through in your childhood but you could remember the sensation of it you could remember the emotions of it maybe nothing of what ha has happened but the sensations and emotions remain in the body. So for Palestinian kids who had been under this direct trauma of being detained or arrested, when they come out from the prison, they also lose so much trust in the people around them. Another thing that they face is um, when there's this pressure of the community of portraying them as heroes. So this is also very sensitive. Most of these girls that we have worked with, again, we don't ask about their stories. I didn't ask about any of their stories. But most of them, you know, um, they didn't do anything. And they were suspected to, you know, carry a knife. Israeli soldiers were just suspicious about them and they arrested them. And they have gone through a whole process of being imprisoned. So when they come out, the trauma is deep of loss sense of security, of safety, loss sense of trust, distrust with the people, distrust with the body, maybe the family, and also being portrayed as heroes adds up another pressure to them, which they're not, not ready to. So basically when they're arrested, they're arrested as normal, you know, kids, unknown. So they're being taken, detained. And then when they're released, usually lots of media would welcome them or wait for them until they come out of their prison, their families, extended families. And that's when they are under the pressure that they have made it out, which is like a big celebration, but also it adds a pressure on them of how to deal afterwards, how to act afterwards. Who should I be, you know, after this experience? Like one of these girls, after coming out from the prison, she refused to speak anything. She didn't want to talk about anything. And there's this pressure from the media of, how was your experience? What did you feel? No, 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 no. And all of these things. And people like these kids, just in their like 12, 13 years old, having all these media around them, and all these people around them pressuring them. You know, they're not public figures. And they turn to become public figures when they're out of the prison. And this adds up another pressure whether on girls or boys. Most of the times, these kids they don't have a space to 
release or speak or you know they still keep holding on to these emotions inside their bodies without being aware of what's happening in the mind and the body for me this is very dangerous to raise up a whole community of kids of children who live under constant trauma and then they become numb even to realize that they're traumatized for the things around us to become kind of like normal in an abnormal situation there are certain things that cannot be seen as normal like child imprisonment uh, you know all of the abuse that they go through and we're seeing so many videos of kids and for me as a mother it just breaks my heart to see the parents paralyzed not being able to protect the child while the child like six seven years old is being grabbed and taken i mean i would be like scared to death if i see all of these like soldiers military just like in their full arms and their full guns just like taking me to an unknown place i would just like be scared to death imagine kids with six seven years old and how would this affect their psyche and like who would they become when they grow up and and this is like like structurally attacking these kids and creating lots of, I would say, hatred. Like, systematically is planned by the Israeli army because lots of these kids are being taken to places that we don't know. From the videos that I see, there's like lots of, um, just recently in Hebron, like all the attack on kids, they're so much young. They don't even know what's going on as kids. And this is like systematically targeting these kids and these children as like um, a message is like planting seeds of hatred and violence inside of them. Because this incident would shape who they become afterwards. That's how I feel. Ilda shares how the occupation affects her own children and shapes the way she parents. So it's very challenging to raise up children in this land. For me, the, the most challenging part is how to raise them in a way where they're not blind to see the situation, but also they're not living hatred or anger or a feeling of revenge at the same time. And it's very challenging to bring this balance because they see things and they hear things. Even if I don't turn on any news in my house, they can still, you know, see clashes happening. They could hear it from, you know, their friends. And I don't want them to feel pressured that this is their responsibility as kids to resolve, you know, and end the occupation. This is not their time. The ramifications of daily life under occupation are even felt by small children. In their short lives, Ilda's sons have had first-hand experience with checkpoints and the permission system enforced by Israel's civil administration. The system controls movement of Palestinian people, not just between the West Bank and Israel, but also within the West Bank, between Palestinian neighborhoods, villages, and cities. Gaining permission to cross into Israel is not guaranteed. An individual must apply for a permit, which may allow for movement of a month or two, a few days, or sometimes only a few hours. And as Palestinians, when we go to Jerusalem or Israel, we need to have special permissions. And as Christians, we happen to have them during Easter or Christmas times. And the funny thing is that I was granted permission for a few years, but not my husband. 
So not in all cases, people like the whole family would receive permissions during the same time. So it was the first time that my husband and I got permissions at the same time during Easter. And we decided to take Jude, we had only Jude, our eldest son, to the zoo in Jerusalem. Because he never went to a zoo. Here we have to go through one main checkpoint to get into Jerusalem. We're not allowed to use any other checkpoint, but the one, it's called 300 checkpoint. And we just parked the car because we're not allowed to drive with our own car. So if you even if you have a permission, your car doesn't have permission. And you can't drive with your own car, so you have to use public transportation. So we parked the car, but the moment we started walking through the checkpoint, Jude shouted and he was like, wow, mom, we're already at the zoo. And for him, the setting of the checkpoint was like a zoo, with all these fences and metal revolving doors. It was for him a zoo. And you know, as a mom, I just gazed out and I was like, well, we're not yet at the zoo. This is a different kind of a zoo, with cages, soldiers standing on the top, and everything is just so closed. Metal revolving doors, fences, barbed wires. And for him, this was a zoo. And immediately it reflected to me, this is not human what's going on here on this checkpoint. If a pure child perceived this with no previous knowledge about what a zoo looked like, he immediately related this to the zoo. And this was shocking for me. You know, for my two old child, and the zoo is for humans. He was seeing the soldiers standing on the top of the checkpoint with his rifle. And he was seeing all of these settings around us that was not a human space to walk, to walk through. And for me, this like, as a mom, okay, I don't want him to feel threatened, fear, but also I can just like blindfold him and say, you know, we're living this fancy, you know, normal life. So there's always this challenge between finding the balance of how to raise your children to keep the human value and at the same time not be completely ignorant about the situation, but to bring this balance. And this is very challenging. Young kids who should not be responsible to save or end the occupation or save the Palestinian society, this is not their mission. This is like a mission for adults or elder people. This is not their job. And for us, the question here at Beit Shams was, what are we contributing as grassroots organizations for these kids to find hope? Because they're finding hope and, you know, doing what act they are doing instead of for us to create a space for them to feel safe and able to express their emotions and vent them out. What we are seeing right now didn't just like happen had been planted and what are we planting right now to see what we really want to see in 15 years because that's like that's how we take the work that we're doing right now and that's how we focus on this moment of what are we planting for the future despite the possibility for an easier life outside of occupied palestine ilda and her husband have chosen to stay for me if i didn't have hope I wouldn't be here right now. I also had the chance to go back to Jordan where I was born and raised. And also um, my husband, he did his master's degree, his MBA in the States. So he was also offered like different opportunities there. But I feel that 
I have a task to do here and that's what keeps me here in this land. I have so much love for this land, for its people. And this is what keeps the hope in me alive because it's easy to lose hope. But for me, you know, remaining, creating this space here. And when I see people's reactions to the work that we're doing, when they come in frustrated or stressed and they leave out in a different, you know, mentality, I have heard many stories of people who had been coming to Beit Shams and going out just like sharing how powerful this was for them. One of these stories is a guy from Hebron and he wanted to leave the country. And he said, the only thing that's keeping me here is you guys. Because the work that you're offering and he connected to himself in a different way that changed how he sees things around. For my husband and I, it was a decision to stay. We were offered many opportunities to leave because people actually at the first opportunity they received, they just leave the country. Because people also think that this is just one life and they want to live it in a decent way. And they want to live it in a place where they're being respected and totally honored for who they are, not discriminated against for who they are. And for us, it was a decision that we made to stay here and be with the family. We ask Ilda if she has anything else she would like to say to women outside of Palestine. So one thing I would love to share with other women in the world is the message of unity, of how we all as human beings deserve to live in a decent life, to be perceived as human beings, which is what's missing when you live under occupation. You are dehumanized in every single way, whether through the permission system, whether through going through many checkpoints, all of the things that people experience under occupation. And my message is to really change things, it has to start from us as women, because we are the ones that are raising the leaders of tomorrow. So how can we just like all work together? And when we put ourselves into others' shoes, we wouldn't accept injustices to happen to any other human in this world. For more information about Ilda's work and Beta Shems for self-development, please visit our website. Thank you for listening to Ilda's story. If you'd like to learn more about the issues raised in this episode, hear more stories, or connect with us, you can do so through our website at womenbehindthewall.com. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, share this episode, or drop us a note. Until next time!